Thanks for tuning in and welcome to the January 28th, 2019 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine. The nation's longest running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show. Out loud and out front since 1974. I'm Wenzel Jones. And I'm Steve Pride, in for Abby Dees. Hey, Abby. She's performing <laughs> surgery or a case before the Supreme Court or something tonight. Or something, or maybe that she's just, you know, away. Away. Mm-hmm. Uh, and since she is vacationing again, Winslow and I are going to the movies. Steve visits with Lori Kay, whom we met when she judged our first Hear Me Out storytelling competition last year at the LA Gay and Lesbian Center. Because she was a judge, not because she's just judging and showed up to rape people. Fast, no, she just showed up to judge and she was very helpful and it was all a lovely experience. Anyway, she's here tonight, well, on tape, to talk about her documentary, Kevin O'Coin, Beauty and the Beast in Me. Now on Netflix, as is everything. Isn't the world on Netflix? And we re- revisit Abby's conversation with the director and two of the dancers from the same-sex ballroom dance documentary, Hot to Trot. Being released on video on demand tomorrow. And then Steve talks to Matt Tyrenauer about his documentary, Studio 54. Also being released on video on demand tomorrow. And because yesterday was Holocaust Memorial Day around the world, we revisit a documentary about the pink triangle called Paragraph 175. Which is not being released on video on demand, but you can get, what is it called? It's called a DVD. A DVD, yes. It sounds so archaic. Remember when that was... One of those stores or one of those booths? Where do you get DVDs? I don't know. I know. I remember when that was the future. Now it's the past. Anyway, let's get started with Kevin O'Coin, Beauty and the Beast in Me. Hi, I'm Lori Kay, director and producer of the uh, documentary Kevin O'Quan, Beauty and the Beast in Me. What's this movie about? Well, this story is about Kevin O'Quan, the renowned celebrity makeup artist who has an incredible, very layered life story. I have a lot of history with this project. I was working on a series about people in fashion, a documentary series at one time, and I was spending a lot of time with people in fashion. So I was spending a lot of time with people like Donna Karen and Carolina Herrera and Vera Wang, and it was about people in their creative process and in their lives, and Kevin O'Quan was one of those people. So I spent time with him, and I got to know him. We went to Louisiana to go to his high school reunion. I was there when he got the key to the city from the mayor. Here he is, someone who had been ostracized for being gay, now coming back to Louisiana and getting the key to the city. And I met his mother and his father, and I saw the house where he grew up. And and I spent time with him in New York, and I spent time with him while he was working on his bookmaking faces. And when I had finished the project, he had died shortly thereafter. And when I heard about that, I was completely shocked, as so many people were. You know, when you hear about someone like Kevin dying, it sort of becomes unreal. How can someone so vital and so young die? It's sort of like when Princess Diana, when we heard that she had died, it was like, wait, what? This is not possible. And so when I heard, I thought immediately, I have to tell Kevin's story because in sitting down with him and hearing about his childhood and his life and how he had been so terribly bullied because he was gay growing up, I thought, wow, this story really needs to be told and it needs to be heard. And shortly thereafter, I worked with his dad to get Kevin's life rights because I thought that was important to make sure that his father 
approved of what I was doing and that he was on board. And someone mentioned to me that Kevin has all these tapes. He had a lot of tapes. And I remembered, oh yeah, when I was filming him, there was always somebody that had a little tiny video camera. And I asked Kevin's father if I could use those tapes to help tell his story. And he had a Cajun accent, and he said, oh, I don't even know what I did with those tapes, so I might have chewed them out. I said, well, do you know where they might be? And so he said, perhaps they're in, in storage. So I went and managed to get those tapes out of storage. And when I first saw what was in that box, well, there were actually two boxes, I was completely blown away. Hundreds of tapes just randomly thrown in a box and randomly marked, like Disneyland, Mom Goes Shopping, Liza, Janet. And I was like, wow, this is extraordinary. So that's how I came to see them. And then I thought, wow, well, gosh, I mean, what am I going to do? There's so many. And so I went on um, eBay and bought an old Hi8 video camera. And I started to watch these tapes and digitize them at the same time. I was completely blown away by what I began to see. And in seeing them, I'm like, wait a minute, this is extraordinary. I'm sitting here and I'm watching Linda Evangelista in a dressing room with curlers in her hair and she and Kevin are laughing and playing and she's joking about, oh, you know, I made that comment about not getting out of bed for less than $10,000 a day. And I'm like, wait a minute, this is history. And then they were so randomly marked, like I would be watching Disneyland. Here we are in Magic Mountain, and I'm on the roller coaster watching, watching, watching. And I'm like, oh, gosh, how much more? Maybe I'll just stop watching this tape. And then suddenly it would just go <laughs> like static. And then, boom, there was Whitney Houston in the middle of a shoot and Kevin doing her makeup. And so then I knew, now I have to watch every single one of them. As I began to watch them and also talking to so many people in Kevin's life. And from my own conversations with him, I began to understand what the focus of his story could possibly be. Because when I saw the tape, I was watching Kevin getting on a plane. And I was like, where are you going? I'm curious, where are you going? And he's getting on a plane, and he's nervous, and he's excited. And I'm thinking, are you going to see your birth mother? For the first time, and my heart just started to race, like, if it's possible that this is where you're headed, it was like a light bulb went off. This is the backbone to this story. And sure enough, there she was, and I was like, oh my God, there's Kevin's birth mother, and this is the moment in which they are meeting for the first time. And for me, it's one of the most poignant moments of the film, is seeing him make that connection he was 30 years old when that happened. So, I mean, that's a little of the backstory of this movie, which took a long, long time to get to this place. How did you put all that together in a linear fashion? It was a challenge because there was so much footage. It was a challenge because there was so much to that story. But I think in my beginning to focus and understand for me, what I thought was Kevin's biggest challenge was that his adoption 
was the thing that he could not overcome in so many ways because when you look at his story and you see the trajectory of there was so much love around him and yet for some reason he could not feel it he couldn't let it in there was so much beauty around him and for Kevin it was like well he didn't really see that in himself and as we know he died very young he was 40 years old when he died and I think the pain that he experienced in not knowing where he came from initially. And his parents, his adoptive parents, were wonderful. He adored his mother, Thelma. They had a tremendous relationship. And his father, while it maybe did not accept his homosexuality early on, came to be a champion for him in so many ways. You know, and I laugh because he says, oh, you know, I didn't think a boy could make a living doing makeup, you know, you know, and then you, you have to laugh because Kevin became so successful. But in focusing what I thought was Kevin's biggest challenge of his adoption was a way for me to then have a clearer line for his life. He ultimately did find his birth mother. And when Kevin met his birth mother, you know, you go in with these expectations. Oh, we're going to love each other. We're going to finally, I'm going to finally see where I came from. And for me, Nelda, that story, I had heard and knew the story of her rejecting his lifestyle and their parting ways. And so when I went to meet Nelda, and I had spent many, many hours talking with her on the phone before I went there and getting to know her and what her story was and her expectations. I wanted that baby that I lost, that little baby that I loved, that I had in my belly for nine months, that I had held in my arms, that I was 15 years old and had to give away. And in knowing a little bit more of her story, you know, yes, she said to him, if I had raised you, you would not be gay. And I went in to get that soundbite. But yet, in knowing her story and knowing where she came from, Nelda having said, I wanted him to go to heaven. The Bible says, man shall not lay with man and woman shall not lay with woman. And that's what I believe in. It's like, how do you hate her for being a product of her world? And yet, completely unable to accept what she believes in. And to that end, he wanted the mother, the mother's love, and she wanted the baby that she lost. And when they met, it was like, oh, that moment of reconciliation. Wow, this is it. And then he was not that baby anymore. He was Kevin O'Quan. He was someone who was all about gay rights, and he was all about being visible and what he had gone through. And he was going to make her see him for who he really was. And for her, she believes in the Bible. And so their relationship was never to be one that was what either of them had really dreamed about. I think that it was something that he could not ever really get over. It was the pain of not being able to have that connection. Tell me about his illness. When he had the acromegaly diagnosis, which acromegaly is a disease, it is a tumor on the pituitary gland, that's normally where it comes from, but it is an excess of human growth hormone, which causes 
you to continue to grow. And your hands, your brow, your tongue, your lips tend to be affected by that. And as several people said in the film, for him to see his features changing really was terribly upsetting, I'm sure. And he always had a problem with his own looks. He didn't love his looks as much as perhaps he should have. And I think that is part of his, you know, just part of one of his challenges. But I think he was very handsome. He had a great physique. He always wore those tight black T-shirts. He always dressed so artfully and so cool. He looked amazing. What do you hope people take away from this? I wanted to inspire people to say, hey, I could dream And even if I'm ostracized or I'm different or I'm far away from where my dream is, to go for it. And I'm hoping that that's what this movie's doing for people. This has been a conversation with documentarian Lori Kay about Kevin Laquan, Beauty and the Beast and Me. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. The Otherworldly Klaus Nomi, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. In the early 1980s, Fresh from the punk bohemia of New York City's East Village came punk opera singer Klaus Nomi. With a robot demeanor and hair shaped into three spikes, his heavy makeup gave him a black-lipped pout. His outlandish costumes ranged from vinyl capes to punk-inspired tuxedos. He could make his voice husky or shatter crystal as it soared into the falsetto stratosphere. Born in Germany in 1944, Nomi got his break when David Bowie hired him as a backup singer and costume consultant for a Saturday Night Live performance in 1979. After releasing two albums in 1982, Nomi felt strangely weak and heard the news about a new gay cancer. It was AIDS. And Nomi was the first well-known personality on the New York scene to make that dreadful exit. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Michael Harrell. Hello, I'm Barney Frank, and you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since 1974, on KPFK-FM, 90.7 Los Angeles, 98.7 Santa Barbara, 99.5 Ridcrest, China Lake, 93.7 San Diego, or streaming online at kpfk.org. Welcome back. You are listening to IMRU Radio. I'm Steve Pride. And I'm Wenzel Jones. And start at the disco ball because we're going to Studio 54. Studio 54 was the greatest nightclub of all time, but its heyday lasted just 33 months under owners Steve Rubell and Ian Schrader. By the time I went past that velvet rope, they were already in jail and disco was almost dead. Matt Tynauer's new documentary about those glory days is called Studio 54. I'm Matt Tynauer. I'm the director of Studio 54. And you were able to get interviews from people who have never talked about what happened back then. Well, primarily Ian Schrager. So Steve Rubell and Ian Schrager are best friends from Brooklyn in the uh, 60s and 70s. They went to Syracuse University together. Very ambitious guys who wanted to get in on the nightclub business. They succeeded and had the greatest overnight success of maybe anyone of their generation. Then, as I pointed out, they crashed and burned. Rubel died tragically in 1989 of complications from HIV. 
Schrager went on to have a great second act in the hotel business, and he and Rubel pretty much invented the concept of the boutique hotel, and Schrager has um, made a, a huge empire out of that. It never really uh, behooved him to talk about Studio 54. It was such a uh, huge success, but also even greater failure for him, and certainly in his eyes. So Schrager talks for the first time uh, 40 years later. Because he talked, other people that have been reluctant to speak also talked. Uh, so you're really getting the first complete picture of Studio 54 that's ever been put to film. Almost all of my friends from the era are dead. So how hard was it to get people to talk, survivors? We raise a good and uh, tragic point. The HIV-AIDS crisis wiped out a generation of people, and many of them were the nightlife denizens of New York at that time, or really all over the country, uh, very, very, very tragically. The constituency of Studio 54 was largely queer, and that population was just so devastated by that. In addition, many people had substance abuse problems who were in that scene, and that took a toll. So there are some memory issues uh, with people who are survivors of the period. They have foggy memories. Some of them have very little memory of it all. Others are fine. So what I'm getting at is that the pool of people to interview who really knew what was going on is relatively limited. And some people were reluctant to speak because it might not have been a great moment for them, ultimately. I think it was a great moment for them in the moment, but afterwards, we're talking about a time when, uh, believe it or not, uh, cocaine was not considered to be an addictive drug at that period. It was very much discussed that cocaine was almost, in the words of Truman Capote, a beauty treatment. It had a different air to it, and a lot of people overdid it. Quaaludes were used and abused and then kind of went out of production at a certain point. It was a very permissive, very druggy period, and though drugs were highly illegal then and Rockefeller laws were in effect in New York, which were, you know, really stringent, and then right after that, the Just Say No movement that Nancy Reagan spearheaded came in. So the attitude toward drugs shifts, but use and abuse of that type of drug, at least, was at a high mark in the Studio 54 period. That must impact the memories of people who you're talking to. In some cases, I think it does impact memory. Uh, in other cases, people cleaned up and went to rehab and seemed totally fine. I mean, Ian Schrager, um, whether or not he ever used drugs heavily, I have no idea. He seems to be uh, very sharp. So whatever he was doing or not doing, it had no effect on him, it seemed. And a lot of people were like that. You know, I interviewed a panoply of characters who were involved in the studio. The Doorman, for instance. Mark Beneke, who was a 19-year-old college kid at the time when he was suddenly elevated to doorman of the most successful nightclub in the world. He becomes a social arbiter in New York City at this tender age. He's great. I mean, he has no memory problems. So a lot of people were there, fully present. With a film like this, you interview a lot of people, and whoever does the best really makes it into the film, quite frankly. A lot of people say, well, why am I not in the film? And it's like, well... 
you know, it might have been the fact that you didn't deliver your interview very well and someone did it better and you end up in the film. So a lot of people are very worthy and were there and important to studio might not be in the movie because other people said the words better. The reason for that is, from a filmmaker's perspective, is that I don't use narrators in my film. What was the hardest part of the story to track down and verify? Uh, That's a good question. There are a lot of fuzzy details. There were a lot of complexities. I think now I should get into really explaining what happened. The club took off in um, April of 1977 immediately. And uh, Bianca Jagger had a birthday party there a week after it was open that was thrown by Halston, who was the greatest American fashion designer at the time. This was really jet-set New York society, the cream of it. After that Bianca Jagger birthday party where she famously rode through the club on a white horse in kind of a Lady Godiva tableau, there was no stopping them. The press took to this, and it was really the greatest media explosion of its time, since Watergate, probably. I mean, the fascination with this place was so total. And they, Rubel and Schrager, uh, were very shrewd about pushing it in the press. So the studio was an overnight phenomenon. They went from nobodies to being very powerful men, really, literally overnight. And they rode that for all it was worth and made a lot of money. In the process of making that money so quickly, they were breaking a lot of laws. For one, they were skimming a lot of money and not reporting it to the IRS. There were a lot of drugs flowing in and out of that club. And they were very vulnerable also to a lot of corner cutting they did. Uh, Probably the best example of all is they opened the club without a liquor license because they couldn't get one (laughs) because it takes time. And Schrager had some things in his past that raised a lot of flags with the State Liquor Authority. This is Steve Pride in conversation with Matt Tynauer about his documentary, Studio 54. So they've cut every corner, but they're raking in money, and they are the kings of New York. And basically their success went to their head, and it turns out, after all these years, it's now known, for the first time really revealed in this film, that a disgruntled ex-employee who had been fired reported them to the U.S. attorney for skimming. And the U.S. attorney collaborated with the IRS, and they very famously raided the club in December of uh, 1978, after the club had been open for about a year and a half. This exploded in the headlines, became a worldwide scandal, and made the club even more popular. So no matter what bad things seemed to be happening to them, they couldn't help but be successful. When the liquor license was taken away, the attendance went up. When the club was raided and they were being then immediately put through prosecution or investigation for tax evasion and drug possession and possibly drug trafficking, although those charges were dropped, attendance went up. They got more arrogant and more arrogant. And the web of complexity about what led to the downfall is intricate. So uncovering the precise details of all of the wheeling and dealing that was going on, of all of the wrongdoing, what exactly comprised the second set of books that the IRS found, who made those books, exactly what people's motives were. All of this is in the film. But getting to the bottom of all that was difficult because 
the characters have forgotten some details. Some of them aren't really motivated to talk about them truthfully. Schrager himself is grilled by me repeatedly in the film and is uncomfortable at times. So it's, it's actually, while he's, I think, quite contrite and certainly telling the story, is his memory conveniently incorrect at sometimes? Sometimes an unreliable narrator is a very interesting thing in a documentary, by the way. And I think that that might be the case here. You get a lot of perspectives on this that paint a picture, but exactly what pure truth is is sometimes called into question in the film. Yeah, um, as you point out in the documentary, there was actually sex going on in the balconies. Mm-hmm. And it's all ended, it came to an end right before the beginning of AIDS and GRID and all that in 81, right. 82. I'm wondering if how if it had not closed, how could it survive? What came next? Yeah, well, this is, I think, uh, very much the point of the film. The disco era, which is the mid to late 70s, and the permissiveness of the era, and what was going on in these nightclubs in a time of sexual freedom, burgeoning gay rights movement, burgeoning women's liberation movement, a kind of druggy time, a counterculture time, led directly into one of the most tragic periods of modern history, which is the HIV-AIDS crisis. The culture of Studio 54 was devastated by that because the constituents of the club weren't just very famous people some of whom were gay, some of whom were straight. It was a lot of gay guys who were in a kind of uh, party culture that was really prevalent and very exciting in New York at the time. It was really a lifestyle almost to go to work then on a weeknight fueled by whatever drug, stay up all night, have sex in a nightclub studio, no exception, and then go directly to work the next morning because you were kind of like, raising your high with coke and then like leveling it off with a quaalude or something like that this is really how people live their lives but then they would show up at work and that was what made new york this really exciting louche exotic edgy type of place and people really thrived on that culture that all did come crashing down principally in my view because of the hiv aids crisis we found hours of 16 millimeter film that had never been seen before shot inside the club. I found it so haunting because you see the participants in the revelry there, many of them clearly gay men, and it was almost wrenching to watch this because you think to yourself, my God, they don't know what's coming. They don't know what's coming. And you're right, there was sex in the balcony, and there was probably uh, a lot of promiscuity that led to spreading of the then unknown, unidentified HIV virus. And how do you deal with that? The fact of the tragedy, I think, has to be confronted head on. What it did to the Studio 54 culture and that whole world is undeniably a story of devastation, decimation, if not more than decimation. So I agree with your premise. I think that studio was destined to crash and burn and dissolve into a wreckage of of something that was golden and burned brightly but very briefly. 
people think the disco era was ended by the HIV AIDS crisis. I think it was a contributing factor. I think it was disco was burning too hot to be sustained anyway. There was a movement called Disco Sucks, which was a backlash against the disco movement, which was a, a, a movement of great cultural and racial mixing, actually, which is a, quite a wonderful story of disco. It was an African-American dance music underground that came from funk, and the gay dance culture picked it up, and then it just became a craze, a trend. And it represented um, something frightening, I think, to the rest of the country, which was a kind of interracial, gay-driven cultural movement that when it became publicized, terrified a lot of people. And I think politicians demagogued it and it created a um, backlash in the, in the Midwest, largely. And at the same time, all of this is ending. The cultural conservative movement is rising in the country. The Reagan era begins and this whole world dies, uh, literally and figuratively. The movie is really about that in the third act. I found that really frightening and really almost unbearably sad, but I felt it had to be examined, and that's what I do in the film. This has been a conversation with documentarian Matt Timehour about Studio 54. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Matt, it was so fun to talk to when we were talking about Scotty Bowers, and this sounds great, and I really hope he's working on something else because I, I love this man's work. He said he was working on something, but it's a secret. <gasps> it's a secret. Which, you know, I wonder what that even means. Me. Yeah. <laughs> no. Now I know it'll be fascinating. Um, okay. We're going to end tonight's show with an audio essay from Abby Dees because she's not here and... And we miss her. We do. Dear 14-year-old me, as yet another year gets underway... I realize that I've owed you a letter for way too long. I know that you feel hopelessly awkward and out of sync with people, but you haven't been around long enough to know how well you're actually doing. You know how people keep saying, be yourself, and how they don't seem to give a damn when you do just that? Maybe they're hypocrites, but try not to take it personally. In time, you'll see that we all have hypocritical moments. The deal is, they're right but they don't understand or tell you how difficult a task being yourself actually is. I can assure you, though, that the only way to get through what seems like an endless wait to grow up is to believe that you are indeed fabulous. I mean, don't be a self-centered jerk, but rather someone who appreciates her gifts and doesn't care about anyone else's vision of perfection. It's the only way to get to where you want to go. Yeah, it's hard. So what? You have to do it. You will do it. Along those lines, I cannot emphasize enough how much you should ignore the families nattering on about your weight. You'll learn later on just how bonkers they are and how lovely you are. Instead of pinning all your life's hopes on being 20 pounds lighter, how about giving occasional props to your classically shaped, perfectly acceptable body? Spend that energy getting better at guitar or reading, or picking your toes, really, better use of your energy than starving. You won't be a rock star, I hate to tell you, but if you'll also stop believing that you're too fat to front a band, or make friends, or put yourself out there in front of people at all, you'll never regret taking those risks. Live now, don't wait. 
And please give up trying to tan. You don't want to have to spend the rest of your life scanning for melanomas, except that you have no melanin. Anyway, people will compliment your fair skin when it becomes fashionable in a few years. You will be loved and appreciated in your life for who you are, which is exactly the same person you are now, only with a lot more confidence, as well as a gentle acceptance of your flaws. That's how the be yourself thing pays off. You'll even have to find delicate ways to let people down who fall for you, which sucks. But I want to underscore the fact that you can stop worrying right now that you're destined to be alone. Did I mention that you were a lesbian? You knew that already, of course. You'll go out with boys just to make sure, and because you want to try to be normal, and because you're itching to experience everything. That's fine, I guess. Just don't expect much. The sooner you face your truth, then the sooner you can live your life fully with a big <clears throat> eating grin to boot. I should also give you a heads up that normal is wildly overrated. You'll discover this repeatedly. Take all those secrets and things that embarrass you and dump them in the trash. This includes any shame about being gay, your birthmark, everyone has them, or those rock star dreams. As soon as you speak things out loud and claim your quirks proudly, you transform vulnerability into strength. This is the definition of having balls or ovaries. Understand that adults are more confused about life than they let on. As a result, they'll inevitably underestimate you. Listen to your gut about whether they're being straight up with you. If so, then pay attention. Ask their opinions and then remember the ones who really look you in the eyes as they share them with you. Remember the ones who care what you have to say, especially if they take the time to challenge your ideas about things. In about 30 years, you'll want to send them a thank you letter for treating you with real respect. The future will arrive in due time, and it'll be worth all the struggle to get there. I promise. Love me. This is Abby Deese, and this commentary was based on my syndicated column, Thinking Out Loud, distributed by Q Syndicate. Oh, Abby, she she got wise with age. I just got angry. Although I would tell my 14-year-old self, stay out of the sun. You just had a birthday, so what will you be in 30 years? Dust. <laughs> well, that's on that note, that light and cheery note. That's it for tonight. Our thanks to Ira Music. That's me. Okay. Uh, and he's not here. So our thanks and continued... Um, Board up, Ricky Herrera. of Ricky Herrera. Plus, we're producers Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. You can find us online at imruradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. And if you're interested in volunteering with IMRU to help make the magic happen, email volunteer at imruradio.org. And really, 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 really reach out to us because we need you. I've been doing this for 25 years, every Monday, I'm exhausted. Please, come down and help us. Plus, we're really fun. We are fun. And you get to be in a small, dark room with all of your gay heroes. I know. Not us, but we can get some to come in for our thing. Okay, we close with a song now from The Greatest Showman, sung by Keila Settle. And the reason, I want to mention the reason we're doing this is because she was such a wonder in last night's version of Rent Live. Oh, I missed it. And despite having a, a stroke... One year ago, Mm -hmm. she rocked out. Well, good for her. I can't wait to hear it. Good night. Good night.